You've heard our open themes with listeners talking about their vocations. New Hampshire shepherdesses love to listen to issues, etc. Or what they're doing while listening to issues, etc. New parents love listening to issues, etc. In the middle of the night. We're looking for more of these elements to include in our open themes. Tell us about your vocation, hobby, or what you do while listening to Issues Etc. Call the Issues Etc. comment line 24-7 at 618-223-8382. If you make a mistake, just start over. 618-223-8382. Thanks for listening, and thanks for contributing to Issues Etc. 618 618- Two two three eighty three eighty two. Christians are accustomed to hearing the criticism that we believe a bunch of myths. Now, maybe a good question to ask when you hear that from someone who says it is, what do you mean by myth? You know, there are people, Christian apologists, who've thought deeply about Christianity and about myths together, C.S. Lewis being one of them. Welcome back to Issues Etc. I'm Todd Wilkin. Joining us to talk about C.S. Lewis, Christianity, and myths, Dr. John Bombaro. He's Director of Theological Education for Eurasia, for the Office of International Mission of the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod, and author of a column titled, When Myth Became Fact. John, welcome back. Thanks a lot, Todd. I appreciate it. What's usually the goal when someone accuses Christians of believing a bunch of myths? Well, the first thing they're trying to do is set forth a defeater proposition. So this is an accusation to debunk Christianity uh, through the accusation of believing in a myth. You know, for instance, the Jesus of Easter faith, with all of its miraculous elements of virgin birth, God coming to earth, those sort of things. And so the association is that it's the stuff of legend, and it doesn't really belong to the historical portrait of Jesus. The real historical Jesus, of course, would be the natural-born son of Joseph or perhaps some illicit affair on Mary's part. And so this accusation is meant to negate the Christian truth claim because they are mythical. And so by labeling the core Christian message regarding the Incarnation as a myth and then supposedly exposing it as as superstitious and fraudulent, then people who uh, are gainsayers of Christianity, what they're hoping to do is drive the person of the 21st century, you know, into their right mind concerning the things of religion, that the things of religion are exactly that, anthropological phenomenons. It's just the religious things that people believe, do, and, and such, but they are not the things of history and of fact. And so the association is with folklores, fantasies, and fairy tales. But I also detect a series of logical fallacies that this accusation of Christianity with myths are latching onto. One is like the hasty generalization. A hasty generalization is a statement that's made after considering just one or a few examples rather than relying on like extensive research to back up the claim which historic Christianity can substantiate. And then there's also the false dilemma, like the dichotomy of Christianity is either a myth 
or it is historically true. And this is what C.S. Lewis is in his great essay, When Myth Became Fact in the book God in the Dock. And then the last one would be, I think, the bandwagon fallacy. So that one is just like it sounds, and that is the arguers claiming that, you know, it's the right thing to do is to castigate Christianity as mythological because these scholars do so, and the majority of people are thinking that way. You had mentioned C.S. Lewis. He was once challenged regarding the alleged mythical nature of Christian belief. What were his insights? Yeah, so he was challenged by a friend concerning the connection about Christian beliefs regarding specifically Jesus. And then his friend said that, you know, these beliefs were the things of legend. And that because of that, Lewis should distance himself from Christianity and adopt a more intellectually viable position. So Lewis considered this, and he asked himself the question, if his friend was right, and there are mythical elements to the gospel accounts, then why would Christians still insist on teaching the biblical narrative about Jesus when they had the option to rehabilitate Jesus according to, let's say, the German higher critical movement? And I really love this question, too. I love what he's considering because there's been a modern-day scholar named Larry Hurtado who wrote two outstanding books on this topic. One was a series of lectures that he gave in Australia entitled, Why Did It Become a Christian in the First Three Centuries? And it's a brilliant insight and analysis at all of the disincentives to becoming a Christian and why a person would do so. And then the more academic work, which is easily read and understood by the same author, Larry Hurtado, Destroyer of the Gods. The subtitle is Early Christian Distinctiveness in the Roman World. And he's looking at the same thing that Lewis is, and that is, how is it that these people would believe such a thing? And there are important reasons for doing so. And Lewis was right to see to his friend that there are mythological connections in the New Testament. We see them already in the Old Testament. We know that there are multiple flood myths for Greek mythology. And, of course, we have the historical account of the Noetic flood. Then there's also Lucifer's rebellion in heaven, which is also similar to the Greek mythological 10-year battle that the Olympians eventually won. And then, of course, we read about Artemis and the chanting of the Ephesians, great is Diana of the Ephesians. St. Paul is mistakenly understood to be the incarnation of Zeus, while Silas is mistaken for Hermes, right? And so on and so forth. So it's there. But Lewis wondered this, going further. He said, why do they refuse to cut the umbilical cord to these mythologies, even if that was the kind of anti Christianity. Well, why would we do that if it looks like the myths would undermine it? And so this is his contemplation on that. He would say that, you know, you would think that we would abandon Christianity with its virgin birth and blood atonement and resurrection of the body, the ascension of Jesus into heaven, and then the fantastic mystery and miracle of holy baptism and holy communion. We could have a Christianity as just sort of a modern moral Christianity such that we see within liberal theology. But Lewis came to recognize that Christianity cannot be understood apart from its mythical framework. And that mythical framework is an important form of communication through the use of symbols and symbols that carry significant meaning. 
In other words, so far from being a defeater argument to dismiss the incarnation as the core Christian belief, Lewis argued that mythology actually reinforces the legitimacy of it. So for Lewis, it was natural that the New Testament should be written in Greek, but also have not only that as its uh, spoken language as a background, but also its words and concepts, uh, its philosophical and mythological intellectual background as means that help communicate the gospel in meaning and significant ways to the pagan world. What did Lewis mean by myth exactly? So he means a story or a narrative that purports in some sense to be historical and which encapsulates and reinforces the strongly held beliefs of a community that tells it. So fairy tales do not purport to be historical, and so they're not properly mythic. That's just simply make-pretend storytelling. What he is saying is that there are myths, the antecedent of which these symbols are so meaningful that they become identity makers and historical markers for a particular people. So what's the relationship between myth and symbol and action? Well, the way that Lewis explained it, he said that serious myths are regularly expressed not only in narrative, that is in storytelling, but also in symbol and action. So symbols and action are powerful and meaningful ways to convey the subject matter. And this is because symbols are meaning-laden. And so there's a difference, for instance, between a sign and a symbol. This would apply, for instance, to our sacramentology, the doctrine of the sacraments as well. So Paul Tillich explains, although he's unreliable as a theologian, but he he rightly observed, for example, that let's say I was driving to St. Louis and I said, Todd, show me St. Louis. And you took me to a sign outside of the city limits that said St. Louis, six miles. Well, the sign is pointing to something else. It's saying the reality is over there. It is not here. It's directing you. A symbol, however, participates in the reality itself. So if I were to say, Todd, please show me St. Louis, and you were to take me to the marquee of the city, it said St. Louis, the gateway to the West. Well, that's not all of St. Louis, but it does participate in St. Louis. It's bringing the meaning and significance of St. Louis forward in the grand narrative of the history of St. Louis. That is what Paul is talking about in terms of symbol and action. So symbol and action are coupled together because they're bringing forth the meaning, the action that's packed into the symbols, the action that's packed into the history is being brought forward in the narrative. And this is why the myths are so important. You give the example of the American myth. Tell us about that. Yeah, in the essay, I I talked about the myth of America. We have myths of America, like American exceptionalism. I'll have to tell you that as a U.S. chaplain and U.S. Marine, I own this. There is something utterly exceptional about America. But it's also melted to the pilgrim's history and the legend of the errand in the wilderness of the pilgrims coming to establish a city on a hill. In other words, the heroics of the pilgrims, their perseverance, endurance, their ingenuity is is all part of the myth, the lore of being an American, of American exceptionalism itself. 
a rugged American individualism is all bound up with that, a can-do spirit. So it includes mythological figures as well, and then mythological symbols like George Washington, Ben Franklin, Thomas Jefferson, actions like crossing the Delaware River and the Battle of Valley Forge, and Paul Revere riding in and, and declaring that the British are coming. All of these build the myth of America, notwithstanding the recent iconoclasm of trying to tear those things. It's, it, it's, iconoclasm isn't just simply destroying the symbols, the icon, but it's a destruction of the narrative, of the story bound up with its meaning. The mindset of Americans really does come from the myth of America, and it wouldn't endure the hard edge historical scrutiny. So for instance, uh, George Washington cutting down the cherry tree and such. But that's beside the point, because if you erase the mythical aura, then you lose all the meaning and significance. You wind up with sort of a colorless state. We recognize how meaning laden they are from history, likewise within scripture. The symbols within scripture, the symbols within Greek mythology carry a heavy weight of meaning. They already mean something in the past. We don't ascribe meaning to them. So for instance, we could talk about the water of holy baptism. Before a sacramentarian, a Baptist, for example, could say that it means my first act of obedience, it means I'm choosing Jesus, it already had a meaning before that, and it supervenes any kind of meaning we can impose upon it. C.S. Lewis is using the same idea and applying it to mythology and its relationship to Christianity. I'm Todd Wilkin. You're connected to Issues Etc. We're discussing Christianity and myths with Dr. John Bombaro. He's Director of Theological Education for Eurasia for the Office of International Mission of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. And he's author of a column titled, When Myth Became Fact. Dr. Bombaro is also a commander with the U.S. Navy Reserve Chaplain Corps. Lutheran Church Missouri Synod chaplains deliver word and sacrament ministry to our military personnel and their families. For more information on their work, visit lcms.org slash armed forces. Serving those who serve LCMS Ministry to the Armed Forces, lcms.org slash armed forces. On the other side of the break, how does myth better convey truth than abstraction? You can listen to our new audiobook, I Trust When Dark My Road, A Lutheran View of Depression. It's voiced by the book's author, Pastor Todd Peppercorn, and includes an introduction voiced by Pastor Matt Harrison, president of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. Just go to issuesetc.org, enter your email address, and we'll send you a link to the audiobook, I Trust When Dark My Road, A Lutheran View of Depression, issuesetc.org, and enter your email address. You're personally invited to join Lutherans for Life and Why for Life in celebrating the theme, Just As I Am, January 14th through the 20th during Life Week 2024. Each theme day will explore a distinct aspect of life ministry through local activities, online educational events, interviews, and more. Find out more at lutheransforlife.org. Lutherans for Life, equipping Lutherans and their neighbors to be gospel-motivated voices for life. Lutheransforlife.org. The sharpest arrow in your apologetics quiver 
You're listening to Issues Etc. The weather is changing, the leaves are falling, and you'll soon be setting up your church's Christmon tree this Advent. But there's a problem. Remember, Aunt Mabel's Christmons are from the 80s. They're made of styrofoam, the glitter has dropped off, and they're being held together with toothpicks. Rush on over to Ad Crucem to fix the situation. We offer all the old designs and a whole lot of new ones. Visit adcrucem.com. That's A-D-C-R-U-C-E-M.com. Our Christian faith is under constant attack, and we must be proactive in keeping our children in the church. At Faith Lutheran School in Plano, Texas, we believe that an education rooted in God's Word is one that stands against the very gates of hell. Nothing in this world is more important. Offering a rigorous classical Lutheran education, we provide in-person and live online remote learning opportunities for preschool through grade 12. To learn more, visit flsplano.org, flsplano.org. We're talking about C.S. Lewis, Christianity and Myths with Dr. John Bumbaro, author of a column titled, When Myth Became Fact. I'm Todd Wilkin. This is Issues Etc. John, how does myth better convey truth than abstraction? Well, I'm going to use C.S. Lewis's words here because I think he best explains it. He says this, quote, In the enjoyment of a great myth, we come nearest to experiencing as concrete what can otherwise be understood only as an abstraction, end quote. And I think this is really a crucial point. So Lewis is saying that that myth, like poetry, may better convey reality than abstractions or factoids because mythology has an inbuilt elasticity, a plasticity to it. There's a stretchiness to its meanings, and so it has an inherent adaptation to it. So in other words, myths mythological elements become much more dynamic when they're melded to something that historically and factually happened. I think that this is an important difference between Greek and Semitic approaches to God. Greek abstract words that sometimes theologians like to use to talk about God, like omnipresent, omnipotent, omnisapient, they don't really say much. They're too detached from the human mind that pictures understanding, that associates narration with images. So if I were to say to you, fire truck right now, in your mind was of a fire truck with the sirens on top and painted red and it ladders, the whole deal. Same thing when we're thinking about God. Myths bridge the gap for the Greeks in this way. And they approximate the Hebraic way of talking about God, which is much more concrete, much more earthly. So the Jew, the Semitic way of speaking, instead of saying omnipotent, they would say, like in Psalm 50, verse 10, the cattle of a thousand hills are his. Now that's much more concrete and conveys more meaning in a mythological kind of way than abstractions. And it's for this reason that God translated himself into human categories during the incarnation. You see, we we wouldn't be able to understand God if he were to communicate to us in categories other than human. So if God were to communicate to us in sort of like porpoise language or the way that bees communicate, it would be incomprehensible to us. But in the fullness of time, God comes born of a woman born under the law to redeem those who are under the law. 
He comes as one of us so that we may recognize who he is and what he is doing. St. Paul reminds of this in Colossians 1.15, that Jesus Christ is the image of the invisible God. And in chapter 2, verse 9, for in him the whole fullness of the deity dwells bodily. And likewise, in uh, 2 Corinthians 4, it is in the face of Jesus that we can come to know God. So God makes himself noble in the very categories that humanity understands and with which we ourselves can sympathize and resonate. So in this way, myth convey truth better than abstractions because they carry a greater significance of symbolic meaning and action. You say that asking if Christianity is a myth, like the ancient Greek tale of Jason and the Argonauts, misses the point. What do you mean? Well, the Greek mythological hero and leader of the Argonauts, Jason, who was on this quest for the golden fleece from Greek literature, the son of Aeson, the rightful king of Ilocos, there was no historical Jason. Now, that's the significant difference right there. It's purely mythological. There's no Jason that we're going to find in history who was on the quest for the golden fleece. While in Christianity, although it certainly follows the age of the myth of the gods in terms of chronology, yet it does something totally different by importing symbols and action to something that was truly historical. Hercules did not exist. Jason did not exist. But Jesus of Nazareth really did. But we also know that the power of Hercules, which is symbolic and is full of action, you know, as he is the destroyer of Hydra, It was legendary and meaningful, but Jesus goes beyond that. He's, in terms of the historic verity of the incarnation and the depth dimension of the reality of God with us, Jesus goes beyond Zeus. And what's interesting about this is I came upon what Lewis was saying sort of by accident. My own kids recognized the myth became fact in real human history God became man and the real historic figure of Jesus of Nazareth with real continuity with us, and especially today is with the Islamist terrorist attacks on Israel. There is a real historic continuity, a geographical continuity, and a anthropological continuity with Jesus of Nazareth and us. All of this is tethered to the fact of Jesus. In other words, these things didn't happen in a galaxy far, far away in Middle Earth. They happened over there, then, among them, and it's still tethered to this very moment. And all of this was brought on to my understanding when my children were little. I recall my then eight-year-old daughter, Marie, listening to a compilation of Greek and Roman mythologies by audiobook and saying about Asclepius, who is the great healer, and about Zeus and Hermes' dad, they're just like Jesus. In other words, he was able to make the connection that the traits of Jesus, which were myths in these other figures that have no historic reality but tie into the the lore of what was Greece, the lore of what was Rome, actually became fact in Jesus of Nazareth when one greater than Zeus was among us, when the great physician was among us and not merely these mythological figures. 
Does all of this mean that the ancient pagan gods were really the true God and that those who were worshiping them were worshiping the true God? Well, no, it doesn't mean that. That God made himself known and his calling card was Israel. You knew where to find the one and only true and living God, and that was in and through his actions, the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So what Lewis is getting at is that we assent to the historic fact, and that fact also has the myth element to it, and that mythical element has become fact. So what we're not saying is that the things of Jesus are myth. We're saying that the myths themselves, the things that people were anticipating did in fact become fact. And they weren't worshiping the true and living God, but what they were doing was they were making connections. They were anticipating. There was enough holdover, both in nature and human reason and the light of reason and the light of nature, but also with respect to religion, the inherent religiosity of humanity, that they would have anticipated God coming to save us. God would be the destroyer of our enemies and the one who bestows goodness and favor upon his people. I think that um, Lewis gets at this by making his uh, strongest point, and I'm going to quote him here. He says this, We must not be ashamed of the mythical resting upon our theology. We must not be nervous about parallels and pagan Christs. They ought to be there. It would be a stumbling block if they were not. We must. In false spirituality, withhold our imaginative welcome. If God chooses to be mythopoetic and is not the sky itself a myth, shall we refuse to be mythopathetic? For this is the Marian and earth, perfect myth and perfect fact. So what Lewis is getting at is this. The Jews were anticipating God coming in and through their own narrative. The Greeks had an anticipation of it as well in their own mythical storytelling. And what he's saying is that the historic and prophetic realities come in the incarnation with respect to Judaism in Jesus of Nazareth, who is born in the lineage of David. But so too, for the Greeks, there's points of contact so that this actually made sense to them. It wasn't so absurd. It was actually part of the mythology, part of the mystique of their own history that they would have been anticipating God coming and God coming in the flesh. So how is Christianity the true myth? So what we have is Jesus of Nazareth is fulfilling for us the real historic antecedent to Israel's history, that's to say the whole Old Testament scriptures, as Jesus himself says, beginning with the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms, he interprets to them and indeed fulfills for them all the scriptures concerning himself. So uh, Jesus is fulfilling this for the Jews, but there are also antecedents amongst the Gentiles. And those antecedents are the mythologies. Those mythologies are giving us symbols and actions of what they had anticipated from the gods and these things. That's to say those traits, those myths become fact when God is present in Christ Jesus, indeed, because he is Emmanuel, God with us. And when we say the myth, we're not saying that Jesus is the myth. We're saying that the mythological antecedents, those anticipations, find factuality in the reality of the historic Jesus. Dr. John Bombaro is Director of Theological Education for Eurasia for the Office of International Mission of the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod. 
He's author of a column titled, When Myth Became Fact. You'll find a link to it at issuesetc.org. Click Talk On Demand Archives. John, thanks. It's my pleasure, Todd. Thank you for welcoming me. Thursday on Issues Etc., we'll get a review of the movie The Creator with Pastor Ted Geese, and we'll look forward to Sunday morning, according to the one-year lectionary, talking with Pastor Peter Bender about Jesus healing a paralytic in Matthew chapter 9. It's really no wonder that the Creator would have even fallen men seeking after Him, not finding Him in these false gods, but anticipating the true revelation of the true God in Jesus Christ. I'm Todd Wilkin. I'll talk with you tomorrow. Thanks for listening to Issues Etc. Listen weekday afternoons to Pastor Todd Wilkin and guests on Issues Etc. Issues Etc. is a listener-supported program. Your financial support is vital for the continuation and expansion of this worldwide outreach. Our mailing address, Issues Etc., P.O. Box 83, Collinsville, Illinois, 62234. Box 83, Collinsville, Illinois, 62234. You can also donate at our website, issuesetc.org. Issues Etc. is a production of LPR, Lutheran Public Radio.